Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello and welcome to episode number 15 of The Music Plays the Band. I'm your host, Rob Koritz of the Dark Star Orchestra. I'm really glad you're joining me today and I hope you all are safe and well. It is great to be with you today. Uh, It's a little bit different. I'm actually recording in a hotel room in Columbia, South Carolina right now. Uh, Being back on the road nearly every weekend, I'm kind of having to learn to do this on the fly. So if I can get an hour here and an hour there to get some work done, it's, uh, it's a bonus. And I'll be honest, it's a great problem to have. You know, not working for a year kind of took its toll on the band, both from a personal and from a financial perspective. And and it's just so great to be able to make a living again, even if it's still not quite back to normal. You know, I think both the band and the fans are adjusting to the pod and drive-in style gigs pretty well. And and we are getting closer to the way that it used to be. Uh, We do have a few full capacity gigs coming up soon. So uh, that's a step in the right direction. I want to thank those of you who have come to the website and left me a note or a suggestion. You've given me some great ideas and let me know what you're interested in hearing. Uh, If any of you would like to drop me a line, please visit www.themusicplaystheband.net to do so. You can also hear past episodes, check out the blog, and make a contribution to help support the podcast. And please remember, a portion of every contribution will go to the Rex Foundation, a charitable organization that was started by the Grateful Dead that gives an awful lot of support to a lot of different groups in the arts. I'm excited to bring one of my bandmates along for the program today. Jeff Matson joins me for a conversation that I'm sure you will enjoy. I love playing with Jeff, and I love talking music with him almost as much. I mean, he is an, he's, he's an encyclopedia of music history, and I've learned a ton from him just sitting on the bus over the years. You know, I used to think I knew a lot about music, but after talking with Jeff, I don't know anything. Also with me today is Billy Melvin from Better Off Dead out of Kansas City. And joining me today for the Sarno Music Solutions Breakdown is a special guest. I have co-founder of Alembic Guitars and one of the designers of the Dead's famous wall of sound, Rick Turner. So it's going to be a great episode. Let's get moving and I hope you all enjoy it. 
Black Music Moment is brought to you by The Queen Store, brandingandapparel.com for all your branding and apparel needs. Technology-driven solutions and concierge service for managing programs of all sizes. The Black Music Moment is our attempt at chronicling the profound influence of black music and musicians on the Grateful Dead, and today we honor Bobby Blue Bland. Bobby Bland was one of the pioneering R&B singers in the late 50s and early 60s. Born Robert Calvin Brooks in the small town of Barrettville, Tennessee in 1930, he dropped out of school in the third grade to work in the cotton fields and never went back. Along with his mother, Bland moved to Memphis in 1947, where he started singing with the local gospel groups. Wanting more than just the church music, he began frequenting the city's famous Beale Street, where he became associated with a circle of aspiring musicians that included, among others, B.B. King and Junior Parker. In 1951, Bland was discovered by Ike Turner. You may remember in earlier episodes that Ike was a talent scout before he caught on as a musician, and he also helped discover a couple of other artists that I've featured here in this uh, segment. Bland recorded unsuccessfully for a couple of years and then took a break while serving in the Army. Upon his return, he achieved his first commercial success in 1957 when his tune Farther Up the Road hit number one on the R&B charts. He would go on to put 11 more songs in the top 10 from 1957 to 1963. His recording career kind of tapered off after that, but he spent much of the 70s and 80s on the road with his old friend B.B. King and had a little resurgence in the 80s as well. Uh, He continued to perform until his death at the age of 83 in 2013. Now, the accolades for Bobby Bland are endless, including seven Grammy Awards, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, the Blues Hall of Fame, and the Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award as well. Turn On Your Love Light was written by Joe Scott and recorded by Bland in 1961. It peaked at number two on the R&B charts and went up to number 28 on the U.S. singles charts as well. In 1999, the song received a Grammy Hall of Fame award, and it is included in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame's list of 500 songs that shaped rock and roll. Now, the Dead were obviously fans, and Love Light entered the repertoire in 1967. The song was introduced to the band and sung originally by Pigpen, and it quickly became one of the band's feature numbers. And with Pigpen's long vocal raps and some really extended jams and some crazy long drum solos, uh, the tune was ever-expanding and their version at Woodstock clocked in at somewhere around 45 minutes. Uh, Pigpen last performed it with the Dead in London in 1972, and after that it was kind of put on the shelf. Bob Weir reintroduced it in a shorter form uh, in 1981, and it remained as a solid show closer all the way through the remainder of the Dead's time together. So here's Bobby Blue Bland with the original recording of Turn On Your Love Light. Get a little lonely in the middle of the night. I need 
need you, darling, to make things all right. Come on, baby. Come on, please. Come on, baby. Baby, please. Shut on the light. Let it shine on me. Shut on your love light. Let it shine on me. A little bit high. A little bit shine. The SMS Breakdown with Brad Sarno is brought to you by Sarno Music Solutions. Producing the finest musical instrument audio gear designed and hand-built in St. Louis, Missouri since 2003 and Blue Jade Audio Mastering, St. Louis's primary audio mastering service since 1999. Now, Brad and I are working up some new conversations for you, and I should have them all put together real soon. In the meantime, I am thrilled to have Rick Turner with me today. Rick is a legend and innovator in the guitar world. He co-founded Alembic Guitars. He spent time with Gibson. And his own line of guitars are used by none other than Lindsey Buckingham, David Crosby, Andy Summers of the Police, and many, many others. He was right there during the Dead's formative years, building numerous instruments for the band, and he was a co-designer of the famous or infamous wall of sound, depending on how you look at it. So Rick and I had a long conversation, and it's far too much to put here in one episode. So uh, I'm going to split it up into multiple pieces and and put it out over the next several episodes. So here today in part one, Rick's going to kind of talk about how he got into the guitar game, and how his association started with the Grateful Dead. Okay, well, here I am today, and I have my friend Rick Turner with me. How are you, my friend? I am great. I'm great, Rob. Thank you so much for taking the time. You know, uh, when we met a couple weeks ago in in Santa Cruz, I was just like, we had some great stories. I was like, I got to get him on the podcast. There's so much to hear (laughs) from him. So uh, I, I appreciate you taking the time. So you... You are a master luthier. Has you've built guitars for some legendary players. You've co-founded Alembic Guitars. Some of your earliest guitars were built for members of the Dead. How how did you get started in this business? I did my first major restoration when I was about fifteen years old, and it was on a Fairbanks and Cole five-string banjo that I found in an antique store in my hometown of, of Marblehead, Massachusetts. And I'd gotten into the Kingston Trio at that point, and and I was headed down that uh, that folky path. And when I went off to a boarding school for three years, um, I just got deeper and deeper and deeper into the folk scene. And um, and I'd grown up in a town where people made stuff. They made boats. They, you know, they did so working with your hands and making stuff was kind of normal to me. And, um, you know, I'd had a boat when I was a kid. I did a lot of the maintenance on it myself. So, um, so the idea of working on the instrument was, uh, it's just kind of a natural, you know? So I graduated from high school in 62, wound up at Boston university the fall of 62. And, um, I hated BU, but I loved the coffeehouse scene. So I majored in coffeehouse. And and, um, and got to see amazing performers. This was a time when, uh, you know, when you could see Bill Monroe in a coffeehouse or or, uh, Mississippi John Hurt or, or... uh, Reverend Gary Davis, uh, and and it was uh, 
an amazing scene. I started going to the Newport folk festivals and, um, and I was playing guitar and I got good enough at, at playing guitar to, to, you know, be playing in some of the coffee houses with friends. But in, I guess it was 63. I, uh, I found a guitar repair shop in Boston. Uh, I'd been making some woven, um, leather guitar straps and these guys really liked the straps and said come work for us and you know in about a week and a half i made more guitar straps than they could sell in six months and and so there was a pile of um mexican uh, paracho made classical guitars that uh, a a local folky music store had bought that imported them. Twelve of them fell off the rack onto the floor, and so there was everything wrong with them that you could imagine. And my bosses at the uh, at the guitar at uh, string instrument workshop said, "Well, Rick, why don't you um, start learning how to fix these things?" And so, bit by bit, I started picking up some <clears throat> luthery skills. So come along to 1965, I'd gotten uh, good enough banging out licks on my D28 to get a gig uh, with the Canadian folk singers, Ian and Sylvia. Uh, Fast forward to a Grateful Dead connection. Uh, Ian and Sylvia were on the Festival Express. Right, right, right. Yeah. And five years before that, I was their guitar player. But I sort of maintained my interest in hands-on stuff so moving on to 66 uh sylvia was pregnant didn't want to tour for a while and i uh, i wound up moving from cambridge to new york and joining a rock and roll band a fan of our band um was a an apartment manager in new york he, he managed some building on the lower east side or something like that and a um a tenant had left <clears throat> and left behind this smashed. Um, so there was a smashed body Les Paul custom. So I, I had a cabinet shop rough out a mahogany body to a shape that I designed. And that became the guitar ultimately known as peanut that, uh, you know, when I moved out to the West Coast and essentially stopped playing electric guitar, I sold it to Jerry Garcia. And so that's the album that's on the Skullfuck album. Right. Uh, that's the, the guitar on the Skullfuck album, you know, or one of them. So from 68 into 1970, I was still being a pro musician, and but being a craftsman too. I hope you all enjoyed part one of my interview with Rick Turner. Next week, we're going to talk to him some more and learn a little bit more how Alembic guitars really got started and some of the instruments that he made for the dead in the early days. Today's edition of There is a Grateful Dead cover band in every town is brought to you by the Authenticity Academy, offering you online courses and private coaching. If you're feeling stuck or confused about the direction your life is going in or you've lost touch with your authentic self, the Authenticity Academy is here to help www.authenticity.coach So today I'm going to go across the state from St. Louis on over to Kansas City and talk to Bill Melvin of Better Off Dead.
Okay, good day. I am here with Billy Melv of Better Off Dead out of Kansas City, right across the state from me. It's a little I-70 series going on here. How are you? I'm fantastic. How's things going on your end? It's it's going well, you know. I'm I'm glad to have you on the on the podcast and get to know some more uh, cover bands from around the country. We've never met, so it's nice to get to get a chance to speak with you. Oh, and I didn't know you were in St. Louis. You're yeah, just down the road from me. Man, it's I love that St. Louis. Yeah. <laughs> Born and raised here, took off for some college years and then came back. All right. Um, so Better Off Dead is in the Kansas City area. Um, how about just a, a brief history? When when did you guys form? How long have you been together? All that stuff. Oh, I'd say about four and a half years ago. It kind of started almost by accident. We had a lead singer that was moving to Florida and my bass player and I just looked at each other and said, let's continue playing music. And we started adding people together and so about four and a half years, it finally became a band as it is today. And is what's the instrumentation? Do you have two drummers? Two drummers, a percussionist, keyboardist, saxophone player, lead guitarist, I'm on rhythm and bass. So two drummers and a percussionist and a sax. So you can give the, the music kind of a little bit of a different twist. Yeah, we try to get our own little flavor on everything because, you know, we, we don't want to, uh, you know, we want to stand out. There's a lot of... Uh, like bands in Kansas city. So we, that's what our little um, niche is. We have females, uh, two female singers and they're fantastic. And they both are great musicians accomplished. And that gives us a little bit of choice, a difference in choice when people are looking for entertainment. I love it. And is, is, is your repertoire all dead? Or you cover some other stuff around the, around it too? Well, we do mostly dead. We do the Allman brothers and uh, you know, Bob Dylan, um, little feet, but mostly dead. And we've strayed away from that for, for one or two gigs. Cause we thought the audience we were playing to wanted to hear something other than dead. And that was a big mistake falling away from, from what we do best, you know? So we've, we stick to dead now. Plus I love the music so much that I don't really have a desire to play too many other kinds of music. How often do you all play? Well, we play, well, right now we're playing through. Let's go back to pre-pandemic. How often would y'all be playing? Well, we play at least once a month, but more likely twice a month. And depending on the time of year, um, like we try to take about a month off after Thanksgiving. That's our big blowout day. We have a really big thing on Thanksgiving here in Kansas City. And, and then we take a month off and then we just pick it up and uh, summertime is the best for us because there's so many festivals and parties and places to play. So we play a lot in the summertime. Do you do you all venture outside of the KC area? Yeah, we've we've go about about a hundred mile radius, but not very often. We really really does have to be a special occasion for us to do it. Um, let's talk about the music a little bit. You know, you you talked about you know you got the two percussion or two drummers and a percussionist and and, and a saxophone. So you put a little different twist on it. Can you tell me a little bit more about your guys' approach to interpreting and performing the music? Um, well, in terms of letting it flow on stage, we we pretty much use the dead structure like how we remember it when we used to go and see the dead. But it, it's hard because you know they change things up so many times. It's hard sometimes to to decide on which version of the song that we want to kind of follow. And then, you know, after you performing for four years, we kind of have agreed on a certain step and let it evolve from there. So the setup is this way. Here's the standard structure. 
within there, we have changed it quite a lot. And we try not to control that at all. We try to just let that flow. So try to let it be different every single time. Sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. You know, what was it? Bobby McFerrin, great improvisationalist, said, if you're going to live on, the, on improv, man, you got to be prepared to be really disappointed. Because, wow. Yeah. <laughs> It doesn't always work. Bobby McFerrin's from Missouri, by the way, oh. as well. He's a St. Louis native. A lot of talent coming out of St. Louis. Yeah, man. And KC for that matter. Missouri is a great music state. It really is. Lots of history. And there's so much work right now because people are so uh, psyched, Jones, jonesing, energetic, thrilled, return to some semblance of normalcy. So you got people that are ready to hear you all the time, which, you know, in, in Kansas City, I know being from Missouri and, you know, I used to play there in my old band and we come there a little bit with DSO. You've got a great community out there. Can you tell us a little about your dead community and the people that come and see you? Uh, I'll tell you what, our tribe is so close and it, it's, I've never been a part of anything where I felt so um, taken care of, you know, like people really care for each other here. They go out of their way to make sure we're all doing fine. And there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people within this community. We don't know each other personally, every, everyone, but it seems that way. And everybody's just out to help each other. It's fantastic. And there's a, a, a core group of people that go out as many nights a week as possible to support local musicians. And I think that is so fantastic. I don't have the energy for that. God bless the people that do. We have this one L her name is Wynn, and she, I see her. Yeah. She's dancing everywhere. Seven nights a week. There's not a time I could go on Facebook and not see her so dancing great. someplace. What, what, you know, I know you guys haven't been around extremely long, but I would assume you see a lot of the same people every week. Yeah. We have a pretty strong uh, core following. Uh, we see the same people every week. And then, New faces come and go, come and go. and go. As we play different places, too, we start to see more people. And uh, that's fun. I'm going to tell you the biggest boost that we're seeing right now is that we're scheduled to play at Royal Stadium, at the Coffin Stadium. I heard about that. You're doing the dead night there. Yeah, we, we've kind of put that together with the Royals and uh, with the help of our community. You know, we said um, earlier that our community here really helps each other. I tried for three years to get the Royals to, to do this thing. I couldn't get it done myself. So I reached out to the community within a month. We had so much pressure on the Royals that they just said, please stop calling. We'll do it. What's the date on that? Uh, tentatively August uh, 13th. I can double check. The last weekend in July, we're doing Jerry Fest in Midtown. And that's a weekend long festival in Kansas City. Uh, it, that's been put on for since well 25 years uh, by a guy named Doug and uh, his partner. And man, it's so much fun just to get together and to remember, you know, a lot of old deadheads just having a great time. Like it's the party never stopped. It sounds like you guys are going to have some great things coming up and uh, I'm glad to hear it. And I really appreciate you taking the time to share everything that's going on in Kansas city. Uh, with with the audience out there so uh please check them out it's better off dead and uh you're going to hear some of their music on the outro today uh first time we've been playing the band that i've interviewed on the outro and i want to thank one of my listeners for making that suggestion so uh looking forward to everybody hearing this interview and again man thank you for taking the time today i really appreciate it
Well, thanks for having me. We're we're big fans of yours, and we're looking forward to hearing you guys play. Excellent, man. We'll be back in uh, we'll be back in the Midwest pretty soon. I have a feeling. Uh-huh. Awesome. Okay, that's Billy Mel from Better Off Dead out of Kansas City. Have a good day, my friend. Thank you. Thanks, man. What a great guy. I'm looking forward to meeting him one day, hopefully uh, here in St. Louis for Dead & Company later this summer. If you like what you were hearing today and would like to support the podcast, we have two different ways for you to do that. You can make a one-time contribution or become a patron with a monthly subscription that includes expanded video versions of our segments, all of the outtakes from my conversations that don't make it onto the podcast, community hang time, there's some videos from home and on the road, including a bunch of old DSO footage, and, and much, much more. You can support the cause and learn more about the podcast and my sponsors, read my blog, or contact me through our website, themusicplaystheband.net. And if you have time, please like, rate, and review the podcast on whatever player you happen to use. Um, As always, I thank you for your continued support and for helping me spread the word about the podcast. Our feature conversation is brought to you by Grateful Sweats. On Shakedown or online, go to Grateful Sweats for subtle dead designs. Search Grateful Sweats on Etsy and see for yourself designs that only other heads will get. When you're wearing the state of Tennessee with Jed in it or the mountain, it's on fire, and someone says, nice shirt, you know they're on the bus and they get what's going on. The cap with the single finger in the air makes its point, and you can look great on tour with men's and ladies' tees and tanks, caps, pins, and clearance items as low as $5. Get it all at www.etsy.com slash shop slash grateful sweats or you can click from our sponsors link at the website a lot of people have wanted to hear from some more of my bandmates so today it is jeff Matson's turn jeff is just a crazy good guitarist who brings so much energy to the stage that it's really impossible not to have a good time when you're playing with him he's also a great conversationalist and i love sitting around and talking music with him i've learned so much uh, he's been a student of this music for a long time and he has a phenomenal perspective on the whole thing. So uh, here it is, and I hope you all enjoy it. Okay, so I am here today with my bandmate, Jeff Madsen. Hello, Jeffrey. Hello, Robert. How are you today? Good to be here. Thank you, man. I appreciate you taking the time out of your busy, busy schedule. I kind of figured I could find, I knew when you would be available. <laughs> right about the same time as me. Yeah, I guess you would. Um, so... We're back on the road now. We get to see each other again, but you know we have a year off pretty much and uh, stayed home. But you kept yourself pretty busy, didn't you? Well, I, I I set myself up so that I would keep my head in the game. I I was doing these uh, shows on Facebook every other Sunday on solo acoustic, and that's not a format I played in a lot. So it was kind of. Uh, uh, it was a bit of a challenge. Not, I mean, not a super hard challenge, but just was some, doing something a little different. And but what it did was, I would prepare for these shows, so it was keeping me playing guitar every day. You know, I would practice. I would work up arrangements of the songs that work good in the solo format. You know, try to incorporate as much bass and lead and rhythm going at the same time as possible. So you live in Long Island. You grew up in New York, and uh, 
I know you come from a musical family. Can you can you tell us a little bit about your musical upbringing? Yeah, my my dad, who's uh, ninety one right now, um, was a bebop trumpet player. Uh, he was uh, um, studied at uh, at Carnegie. It was called Carnegie Tech and Carnegie Mellon, and then he studied at uh, Manhattan School of Music, and. Uh, Moved. He was from my parents are from Pittsburgh, and then they moved to um, to New York because that was where it was happening, you know. And they went to see music like every night of the week, you know. They were seeing Bird and Coltrane and Miles and Dizzy and everything like that. And you know that's all they, you know, they were poor, you know, like struggling musician and life working kind of thing. But they had enough money to to eat and go see music, and that's all they did. So. Uh, and then, uh, uh, from the practical point of view, he became, uh, he started playing, uh, keyboards because it's more work, just, uh, not necessarily concert work, but, you know, playing weddings and bar mitzvahs and all that stuff, you know, to try to casuals. Yeah. Well, yeah. They call them club dates on the East coast, you know, yeah. casuals on the West. You know. We're, uh, was it all jazz in your house then growing up? Yeah, jazz and classical and uh, bossa nova. They were really into my parents. A uh, little bit of, uh, you know, um, vocal music, but like, you know, like uh, Ella Fitzgerald, that kind of thing. Uh, Sarah Vaughan. So if, how, did you, how did you get turned on to rock and roll if it was just a, a jazz world you were living in? Uh, it's it's almost embarrassingly cliche. I, I saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. <laughs> that's, that's the great answer, though. That's that's the perfect answer. <laughs> I, you know, I I you know I heard I remember seeing the, the the cover of the newspaper when the beat it was like the headline. I forget what the headline was specifically, but it was the Beatles landing at Laguardia. You know, it's just like ten minutes from my house. You know, and all this fuss and the screaming girl. So even as a child, because I was only uh, was that 64, 64, yeah, sixty-four. So I was like six years old, um, but I still was intrigued by it, you know. And then I saw them when they were, and I specifically remember hearing them play uh, "She Loves You," and I just thought that was great. I mean, I, it wasn't the girls. You know, I mean, I was six years old, you know, right. uh, yeah. but um, and was, of course that added to the excitement of the whole thing. It was just, but uh, um, guitars and rock and roll just seemed so exciting to me. I, I just, so did that immediately make you want to start playing the guitar? Uh, no, I, I, you know, I thought it was cool, but uh, I didn't start playing for many years after that. So. You, how old were you when you started playing? I didn't start really. Uh, geez, I guess I was probably like 11, 11 or 12. I st- and we had an acoustic guitar in the house, and I started learning chords and stuff like that. And then when I was um, 14, we moved. We, I grew up in Queens in Astoria, and uh, we, we moved out to, Long, to Nassau County, to Long Island. I mean, not that far, like 30 miles, you know, but it was just a completely different world. Right. I was kind of a shy kid, so I didn't, uh, 
make a lot of friends right away or anything like that. So I, I started taking guitar lessons and I got way into it. it was, they were like jazz guitar lessons. And I was practicing, you know, two to three hours a day after school. So uh, that was uh, kind of a blessing in disguise because uh, I, I gained a lot of a lot of chops quickly and a lot of understanding. But I was, uh, you know, it was also the atmosphere of being brought up, uh, hearing imp improvisation all the time. It just seemed like the most natural thing in the world to me. That you, you know, I was never one of those guitar players that was uh, interested in in learning picking off the guitar solo, no for no. At that point, so you're teaching yourself, are you just playing alone or did you start playing in bands when you were a teenager or anything? Yeah. Oh, so when I was, like I say, when I was 14, I was taking lessons, these jazz guitar lessons and practicing a lot. And of course, I was already in interested in the dad and, and I was, of course, I was a big Beatle fan and, and uh, all kinds of other English rock and stuff like that. But then I got into the dad and the Allen brothers and, the band, that kind of thing. And it was very uh, narrowly focused on that for a long time. And, uh, you know, we started our first, you know, garage band. It was actually a basement band for us. Um, we were called Hypnocracy. H-Y-P-N-O-C-R-S-E-Y. <laughs> uh, -E um, which we stole from the liner notes in Europe 72 or something like that. And, Do you remember... Uh, do you remember your that? Do you have that moment? <clears throat> excuse me, in your head, that introduction to the Grateful Dead moment. Do you remember it? Yeah, which was first? They took a, either American of Beauty or Working Man's Dead out of the library. I can't, it was probably probably American Beauty because I sort of remember trucking me and my entree into the. I heard uh, I had heard that and said, "Oh, that's the greatest thing I've ever." Got to see what these guys are about. And and I dug those two albums, and then when I got, and then when um, Skull and Roses came out, you know, and I heard them live, and then all more extensive jamming, I was like, I was completely uh, sucked in. And then Europe '72 came out, and uh, I remember getting that for Christmas that year '72, and uh, I loved that. Just lost my mind. And then seeing them in '73. Uh, that was it, you know. When you got the difference between what they were playing on Europe 72 and the way they played it, you know, a year, year and a half later, um, so you could hear the similarities and the differences. So the solos were all different. Everybody was playing different, but they sounded, it still sounded the same. You had the same vibe. What was it? What, they, they grabbed you. What was it that inspired you and grabbed you? Was it the lyrics or was it immediately Garcia's guitar playing? Was it an amalgamation of the, all the different styles of music that they played? What what made you say, oh my God, The Grateful Dead, this is the greatest thing ever? Um, well, you know, I, I was even, I was already uh, playing guitar, so the guitar was a lot to do with it, but I just, um, Nobody sounded like that. So, I mean, I got sucked in by trucking. So it was the boogie thing, you know, which was that big in the early, you know, 70s. I was into like 10 years after and stuff like that. And, and But then uh, I was also uh, very interested in, um, in psychedelia. Uh, I got started a little early on that road, too. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, 
you know, anything that was, you know, music for the mind like that pulled me in, you know, and they were just uh, so different than anything else I heard. Sure. Yeah, for sure. When, so you mentioned that band, the, the, what was it? The hip hypocrisy, hypocrisy, right. Is that when you first started playing grateful dead music was with, with, with that band? Well, we, we played all, a variety of stuff it was all covers of course you know like your first band well not everybody so i guess but well, most uh, people's though in the garage yeah, playing cover yeah, tunes right yeah. so you know we were playing like uh we were playing some dead tunes and uh allman brothers and santana you know anything that was uh we could wrap our hands around pretty much you know you know <laughs> even like i remember like Oh, I can't figure that part out. We'll just leave that out. <laughs> you know, the first band, you know. Are there particular songs or eras that you really get off on more than others? In the Grateful Dead, or yeah, just, or, yeah. in the Grateful um, Dead era. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm partial to the. Uh, if I had narrowed down, like kind of like sixty, ninety, seventy-seven, uh, that was my deep dive period. That, uh 76 77 is when i started seeing a lot of shows um saw a lot of them on that spring tour the famous spring tour of 77 and um and i, I continued to, to see the dead after that all the way up to 95 but uh, uh for me they, they, you know they, they were kind of right, kind right. Of bumpy, bumpy road down hill um as long as there was, you know, a couple of real music, magical moments per show, I was happy, you know. Right. And once in a while, you'd see a real clucker. It was like, <laughs> I was better off watching Honeymooners reruns or something. Right. <laughs> you know, it's 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 that thing, though, before you joined Dark Star, we had a night where we were hanging in an art gallery in Colorado with Billy. and And Billy says, yeah, you know, by the end, we obviously weren't firing on all cylinders, but every night there would be at least, at least three minutes that were the way it's supposed to be. And for me, that three minutes was worth going out there to try to find it. Yeah. You know, it's kind of what it was like, you know, the days of like hearing a, you know, a show that was like brilliant from beginning to end or, or even all set. It was just right. brilliant. Had, we're, we're gone, you know. I mean, but there were still moments, and it was more than three yeah, minutes, yeah. more than yeah. three minutes most nights. But it was just really interesting to hear his perspective on that. Even if it was only going to be three minutes of that, it was worth it to try and find those three minutes. Um, is your first, you know, I uh, granted, I must tell the audience, obviously, I know a lot of the history here, but I'm going to pretend I don't. Is just because Jeff and I hang out on a bus a lot together, so I got a lot of is your first like pro band. When you when you start really making is that the volunteers? Yeah, and that was largely it. It was a golden time on Long Island where we were. I was able to play uh, five five nights a week in clubs on Long Island, make a living. You know, I mean, so I've never had any job that didn't involve me having a guitar in my hand. In Good my for life. you. <laughs> Which Good I'm for very, you. I'm very proud of. Um, uh, very lucky is what it really is. So. But yeah, it was a time when there was just rock clubs on every corner. And uh, it was before they raised the drinking age. And it was uh, before they started cracking down on drunk driving and all that stuff. 
And uh, it was just a scene. And all the after, yeah, in the late seventies, uh, early eighties, like like video clubs started coming in. You know, the, when when it becomes the tricksters, is that vibrant scene in still Long Island in Long Island still happening? Is, is are you able to still go out there and play five nights a week as the tricksters and you're playing the wetlands and back in the city and yeah, other places? Yeah, we were, we were at that point. I I think we expanded to be like more like a. a we were playing uh, the Northeast. You know, we would go to Jersey, Connecticut, uh, Pennsylvania, even up to Maine sometimes, you know. I remember in the 80s seeing in, in those early Relics magazines, you guys were all over that. Yeah. I didn't know any of you and I didn't know anything about it, but I knew who the Zen Tricksters were here in Missouri because I saw your name in Relics all the time. Uh, yeah, Is- well, we were probably the, not probably, we were the band. They played at the Wetlands more than any other band. They were uh, a fixture there from the, from day one. Is is this the time period where you and Barack are living together? Uh, uh well, somewhere in there. I mean, when we started this, and yeah, we we were playing Wetlands when we were. When we were what was what was the music like in that house with you and Baraka? Was it dead all the time, or was there oh, no, shit loads no. of jazz going on as well? All, all kinds of stuff. I mean, I've always said. Not always, because I, like I said, I had narrow focus at one point. Uh, you know, I have pretty eclectic taste, so I was always turning him on to shit. And he would be listening to Cecil Taylor and Dumple and, and uh, McCoy Tyner. And they both like that stuff, too. So for the far out stuff. I, I know firsthand that Jeff Jeff is an encyclopedia of music history and a huge has a huge music collection. So I'm going to ask you, which makes the bus a ton of fun because we can talk about old songs all the time. Yeah. Um, but who else besides Garcia has had a had left the big and biggest impression on your playing or in songwriting? Who else had a you know was a main influence for you? Well, Dylan, uh, I was a, and uh, that goes back to you know early seventies and. Uh, I remember when Blood on the Tracks came out, hearing uh, Shelter from the Storm on the radio. I think I was probably stoned, sitting in the backseat of a car, and I was just, but it was the most amazing thing I ever heard in my life, and that sent me on that. I mean, I had already had, like, the greatest hits and stuff like that. Right. That, but, but then I was like, oh, my God, when I heard those lyrics and, and the way he sang it. And then uh, in the... Mid to late seventies, I really got into Elvis Costello, and I was, uh, you know, huge Elvis Costello fan. Still go see him now, you know, and uh, he was so prolific. And uh, you know, I loved. He was sort of notorious for his wordplay and uh, wordy lines. So you know, I I incorporated that into my songwriting, and uh, you know, I I love the. it was, it would rock out, but he would also have a lot of beautiful melodies and stuff like that. So it's interesting because that's that that music is more about the song. It's yes. it's not it's not heavily improvised, you know. It's it's about the song structure and the writing and and all that. It's yeah. it's way. I mean, your 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 tastes are so varied from st- song structure out to psychedelia and and, and improvisation. That's very cool. Um, Obviously, Garcia had a major influence on your playing. If if you don't mind, can you offer up some specifics on how? I mean, both on the technical and the spiritual side, that that Garcia really gets got into your guitar playing. 
Uh, well, so many rock guitarists are, uh, are just play scales, you know, pentatonic scales. Uh, uh, they work with the, you know, the harder the rock tends to be. It's just all blues scale stuff. It's not really. Uh, and and here was this guy who was playing melodies, and I was just. Uh, I had a I had a, uh, uh, a a moment at a my first Garcia band show in 1976, uh, and he was playing uh, Catfish John, and I and I was just loving what he was playing, and and I realized oh I know I understood what he was doing, like I understood he was he wasn't just you know coming up with these melodies he was, but it was based on the fact that he already he already had the technical end worked out and he was working off the chord changes and, and that uh, informed everything that from that day on in, in his, well, his playing, obviously that's when he started really, uh, we really started to inform his playing. And then, you know, I followed that, that down the road. So it, the melody thing and, uh, <sighs> What was the question? <laughs> and then, on, well, you, you you crushed it on you know. I asked you why you, you know specifics of how he had an influence on your playing, and you kind of you covered right there the technical thing, you know, the melodic structure and all that. What about on the spiritual side? Yeah, and I, well, I also uh, loved the how deep they would go. You know, how, uh, to this day, you know, that's that's the other side of it for me is uh, how out there they would get and. That that just um, that just takes me to another place. I mean, it is another place, you know. But when they would, get, you know, uh, I was uh, when they would get to that atonal place, which is I would my hair would stand up on my, you know. And I didn't understand exactly how that worked at the time either, you know. But uh, it was it it was it evoked so much, like you know darkness and confusion and all like a, all emotional stuff that uh not not many uh bands were uh, getting to that deep a place you know i wasn't hearing it anyway so, i would um, sorry. Yeah. i would imagine that you know like so many of us of the rock and roll fans who although you grew up in a jazz house some maybe not that's like a lot of rock and roll fans first and sometimes only exposure to to the free jazz thing is hearing the dead's right. atonal thing. Sure. Was that was that for you like your first exposure to that kind of stuff? It probably was, you know. But it, it you know, I'm always a voracious reader. And so I was always finding out about uh and we had some stations here, you know, some BA, uh, KCR and BAI, uh, not BAI, sorry, KCR in New York who would play, um, you know, they would have like Sun Ra Day and stuff like that, or, or Cecil Taylor, and they would play it all. And I was just like, holy shit, listen to this stuff, you know. And um, so, uh, you know, I, I started finding out. But uh, just to add to that, uh, some of my, some of the greatest feelings I've ever had is been in like, a stadium with 80,000 people and the dead are down, they go <laughs> for like 20 minutes. And, and holding on. 
This is in a stadium in front of 80,000 people. And holding on to most of them, keeping most of them captivated as well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. That's awesome. Um, let's jump ahead a little bit. Let's talk about songwriting for a minute. Okay. Um, it, it seems like, you know, the mid 90s to the early 2000s was a really prolific time for the Tricksters. You guys released three albums during that time. Yeah. And so you're writing a lot. Who's in, in the Zen Tricksters at that point? It's you and Baracko and Tom Stracosta and Cliff Black. And who's playing drums? Uh, well, Tom kind of came and went a few times. Uh, uh, so, yeah, the record, the first two records, it's uh, the first record is me and Cliff and Baracko and Dave Diamond. Dave Diamond. And then the second record's the same lineup, but with Joe Churko playing drums. And then the third album is an acoustic album. Uh, so it's just me, Tom, and Cliff mostly with some other. Gotcha. So you're doing all this writing during that time. I mean, songs are popping out. Who's doing the bulk of that writing? Is it you and Cliff? Is it you and Rob? Well, uh, I, I was always the one who was doing the most, I would say, because I should add that going back to the beginning of the volunteers, even we always did Grateful Dead and originals, you know, and, and it was all, so uh, it's always been, you know, how many can you get in there? And still keep the right. How many can we speak, speak you know, in without losing uh, their interest? Let's face it. What was, what was drawing people in the door was the way we played Grateful Dead, you know, and we were, but we said, hey, the Grateful Dead write new songs all the time. We should write songs. Why not? So, uh, so right from 1979, uh, I was writing songs. Uh, what What was the, I mean, here's the obvious question then on this. What's the effect of Hunter and Barlow on you as a songwriter at, at any point in your songwriting time? Oh, well, I mean, I was in love with their lyrics. So, I mean, if I had to say, it was Hunter and Barlow Dylan and Costello back in those days, you know, that was kind of informing my whole, my whole, and it, you know, which is dangerous because you're, you're setting these, you know, you have to please them, you know, in your own mind, you know, is this worthy, you know, and you, you, you could uh, edit yourself out of existence. Did that make you second guess a lot of the songs you were writing? It made me work harder on them, I would say, you know, it just, uh, but I was, you know, and then I, I've always been happy to collaborate with other people. I mean, uh, during this last year, uh, Randy started writing a lot of lyrics. All right on. That's awesome. We were, we were, Randy we were, is Jeff's wife, by the way, people. Yes, I'm sorry. Yeah, we, we uh, I think we, last year we wrote about eight, nine songs together. I didn't know that. That's great. Yeah. yeah. But, you, you know, I hadn't been, you know, I took, that's another thing I did to take advantage of the time. Would you say, in in your estimation, is there a defining difference between Hunter and Barlow as a songwriter? Well, I mean, if you look at the list of songs that Hunter wrote, the list of Barlow, you know, Barlow, Hunter wrote like a hundred times more songs than, you know, than Barlow. But Barlow was, you know, you can't, uh, Barlow wrote some beautiful lyrics. I mean, you look at Cassidy. There's just brilliant lyrics. They're, they're worthy of Hunter, you know. Uh, I mean, that's just one example. Uh, Cassidy has one of my, has 
basically my favorite Grateful Dead song line of all time in it. It's fairly well, let your life proceed by its own design. Yeah, yeah. That's, those are words to live by right there, man. Yeah, yeah. Um, you also had a song, I think it was you and Copan by you and Rob on Phil's album in 2002 on the There and Back Again album. How did how'd that come about? Well, uh, we wrote that we were doing it uh, in, in the last days of uh, when Rob Arago was in the Tricksters. It was a Trickster song. And uh, it uh, I was kind of kidding him about some of the uh, his exploits. You know, uh, the song is kind of the classic song about the devil on one shoulder and the angel on the other. And he's the protagonist is saying, you know, you guys argue back. They'll leave me out of this. I'm going in. You know? so, um, so I wrote these lyrics. I gave him to Baracko and he, he wrote this tune to it. And then... Uh, you know, it was a very driving song. And uh, at that time, uh, he was playing with uh, the uh, Phil Ash Quintet, Q. And uh, Phil wasn't, at that time, wasn't doing any Bobby songs at all. Right. And, and, Bill, and Phil said one day, uh, I wish we could do, uh, I wish we, even though he didn't write it, but uh, I wish we had uh, uh, Samson and Delilah. So Barakto says, I, I have a song that kind of fits that groove and, you know, that kind of feel. So he said, oh, bring it in. So they did that. And then they, uh, when they went to make the record, they put it on there. That's awesome. And then they did, I was, you know, very excited. Uh, they did that. And then they had their CD release party. I think it was at Irving Plaza. And uh, I had a gig so I could only go to the early show. But of course, they played it at the late show, so I never get to see them play. <laughs> I never, never. I never saw them play it. No. I wow. Of you, uh, you spent a minute, you and Rob, when when you guys first went out. You went out and put a Phil and Friends a couple of shows. Like one of the very first Phil and Friends incarnations. Yeah, it was early. It was uh, uh, October '99, and uh, you know he had done the uh, the ones with uh, the Fish guys and uh, David Nelson Man and Yorma. Um, what was the first song you played with Phil and Friends when you went on stage? <laughs> Come on, yeah. so the people the, okay. the people want to know. Three nights. We played three nights at the Warfield. Didn't repeat a song all three nights. Uh, but what did you open we, we, with? I'm coming to that. We're, we're working on, we're, uh, we rehearsed like, I don't know, eight or ten days for these shows too, which has become not the case for Phil. But this was 99, so... He comes in one day, I want to do Jump by Van Halen. We're like, oh, yeah. You know, nobody's excited about that. <laughs> but, but Phil, he actually loaned us one of his cars to drive to the, and he had like a best of Van Halen in the glove compartment. You know, that was like, I think his kids were into it probably, you know. So he, he wanted to do Jump. And of course, he didn't want to, hey, he couldn't sing it. So he said, who? Rob, you sing it. And Rob was like, oh, okay. <laughs> so we, the first night we opened with, uh, we, we did like a uh, ohm kind of a thing. We were ohm, like chanting thing for, for a couple of minutes. I was, I was doing some of the throat singing where you split your voice. And, and uh, Rob breaks in the boop, boop, boop. <laughs> And we did a 20-minute jump. Uh -huh. 
And this is the legacy of the Zen tricksters and, and Phil, Phil and friends, you know. Uh, they were really weird shows. I think the second, just to give you an idea, the second night we opened with Broke Down Palace and the third night, I think Milestones we opened with. So uh, I think Phil was being deliberately uh, confounding, you know. <laughs> Right. <laughs> break down any expectations people well, opening with jump will certainly do that to the dead audience yeah. um, I know that's I might add that's the only time he ever did it <laughs> one and done baby <laughs> yeah. so so you know I, I remember reading like comments on some board you know thinking, and people were speculating whether you know this is what Rob and I brought to fill in. <laughs> Thank you very much, Zen Tricksters. Uh, I want to talk about your relationship with Donna Jean Godshaw, McKay, um, yes. which it, it's very close. You know, and I, I know you've had you've had Donna Jean and the Tricksters. You've been a member of the Donna Jean Band. Um, how how first of all, how did that relationship start? Okay, well, you'll remember this. It was the tenth anniversary of Jerry dying. We're, uh, we're playing the, uh, uh, I wasn't playing with you, but uh, you were also there at DSO, uh, the Gathering of the Vibes. The one that was at the farm. This was out at that farm where, where we played the whole night where we were at the backing band, right? That thing? You were the backing band. Right, okay, yeah. yeah. Okay, I remember. Yeah. yeah, so it was a tribute to Jerry with all these special guests. Martin Fierro was there, I remember yeah. that. Peter yeah. Rowan, David Nelson, uh, 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 Tom Stanton, right. uh, Melvin Seals, Jackie and Gloria. That's right. We backed everybody. That was a fun night. I forgot yeah. about that. Yeah. So, um, um, I was, I have, I'm the one person who's played every single gathering of the vibes. Uh, so I have a close relationship with those guys. So I called them and said, I, if you need any help putting this show together, I'd be glad to help. And they said, Great, you know. So they, they dumped the whole thing on me. So I was uh, I organized that whole. I curated that whole show, show. and that explains that explains why it ran over so long. But it was so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so I was the one who had to. I called up all those guests and. Um, Find out what they were comfortable singing, what they would like to sing, and and then uh, you know I, I wrote a set list and who came in where, and it was it's a big job. It was fun, totally fun. But that's so I remember uh, calling. I think I was on the road with the Tricksters, and I called Donna Jean, and she called me back. Uh, uh, she was. Or no, I got her on the phone. She was in the supermarket or something like that. And I, was like, and I remember thinking, wow, she does her own shopping. <laughs> Gosh. <laughs> she gets a big kick out of it. <laughs> anyway, uh, she was nice enough to say, your band's playing too, right? And I said, yeah. She says, well, if you like, I'd love to sit in with you guys. So, And we were always the first band on, on Thursday. We opened the festival with Tricksters. Uh, it's kind of a spot, you know, and, and then DSO would play. Later Same spot, yeah. Yeah. So, um, so that's when we met her, and we just she dug she dug the tricksters, and she, she got it in 
we both would spend the rest of the afternoon hanging out, uh, you know, uh, her and David and the tricksters. And, uh, and then we did a, a, a Rex benefit. It was another kind of all-star event uh, in New York City here with, with Donna Jean and David Nelson, Tom Constanton, Mike Felserano, uh, on and on. So that just opened the door. We actually made an album out of that. It was just out of print now, but that was for benefit for Rex. But, you know, through working on that <clears throat> and then flying down to Alabama to mix the album, we just got to be close. And then we we decided to put a band together and it was unfortunately named uh, at first with Kettle Joe's Psychedelic Swamp Review. Review. Uh, which was uh, a fun name, but not very smart. And uh, so that, after a year or two, uh, we changed it to uh, Donna Jean and the Tricksters. And, and we did an album uh, with that band, with that line. It was, it, was this, it was me, Cliff, Tom, Dave Diamond, uh, and Mookie Siegel on keys. And then we had a, 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 another a woman singer, uh, Wendy Lantern. Right. And, and then, uh, so we did an album and we toured this one. And then that kind of wheels kind of came off of that. It was digging on wieldy. And then uh, I, that's when I kind of put the tricksters on hiatus. And uh, we started to, she insisted it be called the Donna Jean Godshaw Band with Jeff Manson. Just another long, unwieldy name, but at least you could just call it the Nanjin Gajo Band. It's easier than Kettle Joe's Psychedelic Swamp Review. Yeah, <laughs> yes, it is, and it also lets people know who's going to be there, which is one of those important little details. Did, didn't you guys just do something during this pandemic, you and Donna? Did you re-release something or remix something? Yeah, well, there's a song uh, on the. Uh, Donna Jean and the Tricksters album. There's a, we co-wrote a couple of songs on that, uh, Donna and I. And there's one we're really, really proud of, a song called Shelter. And uh, we never quite felt, I mean, the version that's on the record is, is good, but we never felt like we really hit that, what that song needed. So I've been nagging her over the years i say you know one of these days you've got to go in the studio and get some it's got some it needs some really uh muscle shoals backup singer backup vocals you know or we we just sent a little to long island or something i don't know <laughs> not that so, there's anything wrong with that <laughs> well yeah depends on what you're talking about <laughs> talking about yeah talking about so, exactly <laughs> So um, she uh, she finally realized that this song was very poignant for what was going on in the world these days. Uh, so uh, she she did. She went in the studio. They they added all these. They, you know, like she knows all these great backup singers, Muscle Shoals. That's where she lives, and you know, I know you know that, but um, and that's where she started her career. So, uh, Florence, Alabama, right across the river from Muscle Shoals. That's right, exactly. Uh, that's on that album. I know, I love that song. <laughs> love that song. <laughs> and, um, you know, just released as a single, uh, 
download it. Anybody can get it on any of the uh, streaming sites. Just it's um, Donna Jean and the Tricksters Shelter Muscle Shoals Remix. You have to ask for that, or you'll get the other one. But, um, Kettle Joe's a psychedelic swamp. No, 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 no. no, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't want to. I don't want to talk about us, Dark Star, too much. But I want to touch on it for a minute. Um, I, th- I know you had sat in with us before, but you come and do your first full show with us at the McCarter Theater in Princeton yeah, in 2009 when JK was taken off to do further. What, what what was it like for you coming from what you'd been doing? What's it like jumping into this, this for lack of a better term, this performance art approach to playing the Grateful Dead song? Uh, it was, uh, it took a little while for me to, get in the right head space. Um, I was so used to, you know, the traditional jam band approach of like, oh, I'll take uh, this bit from this version and this bit from the, you know, from 2000, oh, not 2000. I'll take, you know, this thing from 69 and I'll take this thing from 77. And well, and that'll be our version. We'll just play it any way we, you know, we like, you know. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with that, but, you know, obviously, DSO has a uh, has a thing that, that nobody else does. So uh, I had to get that all sorted out in my head. And it, it, it really took a few years to get, to, to get it uh, so that, you know, we're playing an 83 show. I know what, the, you know, I, what's required. And, this um, is this is so weird. But I just remembered this when you're talking about that. I don't know if it was that night or somewhere early on. I remember coming up to you and saying... <laughs> I was saying, hey, like when we do me and my uncle, you don't have to take 26 passes on the solo. <laughs> I, think it was, I think it was Mexicali Blues. But yeah. <laughs> Mexicali, like, you, you, don't, you, you don't have to take 20s. It was like the world's the longest Mexicali Blues we'd ever play. It was 19 minutes long. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny that uh, I think it was at that first show, too. Uh, Dino said to me, I, uh, this, uh, this sugary was 18 minutes. I think it's one of the longest ones they ever did. I said, you want 18 minutes no problem. you know which was the difference between uh, my approach and i guess jk's approach right it was you know was more concise i was used to playing as long as i felt like and you know i went off the deep end that way maybe he went off the deep end that way I right, don't know. right. <laughs> so i had to temper that a little bit you know well said <laughs> so when yeah so it took you a while i get that i mean for us it was fine right from the get-go obviously but i guess is there like you were saying you know garcia's playing it evolved over the years and it's so different throughout the eras is there a mental adjustment you have to make when we do a 74 show as opposed to an 87 show yeah yeah there is i mean if we're if we're doing a 69 show one night and an 89 show the next night you know it takes a whole it's a it's a different skill set you know um uh i mean i wouldn't want to say that like if 69 have to dumb it down or something like that but it's more visceral it's more uh I don't know. It, it, it makes me tired. Is what it does. It know, makes me tired too, man. It's a lot of notes. They were in their twenties. You know, <laughs> I'm in my sixties. Right. You know, so. those, but those I shows, love doing it. Don't I do too. Wrong. We never did it before you showed up. You know, we never touched the sixties until Jeff joined the band, and <laughs> it opened up a whole other world for us. 
And it's so cool because it's so different than, you know, like he said, they're in their 20s. Hell, it's part of it. Bobby's still a teenager. Um, and they're playing with this young energy that's so different. And it's it's a lot of work for us to do a 60s show. Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, um, and the equipment's good, very... It's a good kind of tire, though. Oh, hell yeah, man. I love doing them now, you know. Yeah, At first, yeah. I, I mean, I hadn't listened to a ton of 60s, you know, because most of the, at least most of the stuff I could get my hands on was shitty recordings of a lot of psychedelia. And I'm like, this is no fun to listen to, you know, so I, I wasn't that into it. Not to say I didn't enjoy it and wasn't into it at all. But then when you joined the band and we really started taking a deep dive into it and we got the good recordings and you can hear it with the two different drummers. I was like, holy shit, there's some way cool stuff here. I can't wait to play this. And then admittedly, and I tell this to people and when I do interviews about us, you know, that we didn't do that stuff till you came along. And it took us years before we really felt like we were doing it justice, you know, it's a different way to play and it's harder. Yeah. It's a different style. And it, it took a while to really learn how to do it. Well, yeah. You know? yeah. But, it, but it's, it's, but it's so rewarding now that when we do it and it sounds like, Oh yeah, that's the shit right there. Oh yeah, man. Hell yeah. 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 Um, and the, the equipment's very different then too. So I want to talk about that a little bit. Um, you know, you, you have to, we all do, but you know, everybody in the band does. But you change your axes and your setup quite a bit according to what we're doing on a particular night. Um, were you much of a gearhead before you joined DSO, or were you just a plug and play? I was a plug and play guy. I mean, I I, uh, I remember actually the, it's kind of funny the first time I met JK, and this is years years before, you know. Um, uh, I think it was the uh, Tricksters were opening for you guys somewhere or something like that, and so I introduced myself, and he just started talking about gear and he lost me man i didn't know what he was talking about the buffers and you know uh, you know he knows his electronics i was like way impressed you know i thought well wow uh okay uh i have a volume and a tone control on my guitar mine goes up and down <laughs> um sarno though brad sarno who does a segment on my show and is one of my sponsors and an old high school friend of mine he's helped you quite a bit along the oh way. my god I, I he saved my life because i i was way out of my depth you know i, I like i said i had a strat i had a standard off the rack stratocaster and i had this tone king amp and i had a couple pedals that i just plugged in on the floor and you know pedal board or anything like that and uh i was good to go it was always the guitar was just the medium, you know, right. the music. From, and, but I got it right away that, no, if you're going to be in DSO, you've got to have the right shit. It's got to sound right. Uh, and, uh, yeah, Brad was invaluable, man. He still is to this day, still helping me out. Um, and he, he hooked me up with the uh, put-together guitar that had the effects loop and, and, and the right pickups and all the stuff I didn't know about the, and, and now, you know, you, you change your axes, of course. Yes. According to. So does, 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 does change, I don't know how to ask this properly. Um, does changing the axe that you're using contribute, I don't know if this is the right word, contribute to your ability to like channel, to channel a different era to get in that mindset? Say, oh, yeah. Say the 60s Strat versus that 77 Travis Bean, you know, does it yeah, change? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, as soon as I get the tone dialed in, uh, it, 
you know, it it clicked something in my head. Oh, that's the sound that these tape sounds like, and and the the licks start coming out that go that go <laughs> with that guitar and that setup, and and uh, you know, it's it's actually very inspiring to do it with the right gear. You know, it's, it uh, it tells you, uh, you know, it makes it all make sense. You know. So let's take that to the next level because you've had the opportunity to perform on a couple of Garcia's axes. You know, we had the Wolf out at the Fillmore at least one time. I know you've played on the Wolf and did you have a great American one time, maybe too? No, the Wolf was actually, I played in, in, uh, in Boston at the Boston. Oh, uh, right, right, right. At the, uh, what's the theater? The Wilbur theater. Right. And, and the Lowell, uh, and the Lowell opera house. Opera house. Yeah. And then, and recently you had the alligator for the second, for the second time. Yeah. Last February at uh, the, the Warfield, and then last month in Santa Cruz. And, yeah, and so, also and also uh, uh, Jerry's uh, Martin. We, oh, that's uh, right. Yeah, the Martin so, acoustic too. Yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah. So, so I mean, you're one of the fortunate ones who's <clears throat> actually been able to put your hands on and perform on some of Garcia's guitars that he used on stage with the Dead. When when you're playing those axes, does the energy just come shooting out of them at you? Yeah. It really does. It really does. And it was interesting because uh, that last shows we did in, in Santa Cruz there. Uh, and, well, of course, you know, playing the wool of the uh, tie. Alligator. Wrong animal. Alligator. <laughs> <laughs> I, I swear I know my animals. Um, yeah, the alligator. That's, see, I mean, that's a really special guitar for me because that was the Europe 72 guitar. And, uh, I love the sound of that guitar, right? That's definitive for me. And uh, so we were, you know, just, just a couple of weeks ago playing that and we're doing a Europe 72 show and we're playing the first song was like trucking or something. Like that. Yeah, that's right. We're doing the jam and just hit a couple of notes. It's like, Oh, that's exactly <laughs> the sound. You know, it, it, it's, it's, and that's that guitar was played hard and, and put away wet, you know, it's like really, uh, it's really got the mojo in it. Same thing with Wolf, though. And and what I think what I was going to say was, and then the next night we did a, uh, or, or another night, we did an elective show and I played uh, a copy of the, with Andy Logan's copy of Wolf. Right. So, and I played the real Wolf and, the, and, and it was a beautiful guitar. I mean, except for the cigarette burns on the real wolf. And there's a little hole where he had a, a mini pickup stuck on it one time. You'd never, you'd have a heart. You'd be hard pressed to know which one was the real, but it's mojo. That's so cool. You know, it's, it's so awesome when we're very lucky that we get to touch yeah. these instruments and they come out to us, you know, and we've been able to become friends with these people who are, willing to share all that with us you know and that night betty is recording the show just as she did 50 years earlier in europe and right right turner sitting right. back there and, yeah, and doug, doug Irwin was around that night i mean it's just <laughs> we're so blessed and we're so lucky to do that and 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 thank you man for for playing music with me of course but for sharing all this with everybody else um now you've heard enough of these to know that all it's the, the worst to do right <laughs> We're going to go for a record. We're going to try to make this the fastest lightning round oh, in, in the music plays the band dot history. So uh, Jeff knows how it goes. He's listened. We're going to see if we can keep it under 10 minutes. Today. <laughs> <laughs> right. First show. 
9873 Nassau Coliseum. Favorite show? Favorite show? Oh, uh, I'm partial to 6-9-1976. I was also there at the Boston Musical. Yeah, we just played that. Right around the corner from the Wilbur. <laughs> Didn't we just play that? Well, oh, yes, it, we did. We did. We just played that. Yeah. That was the other night in Felton, wasn't it? No, it was in uh, Jersey. Where did we play that? In Jersey. Jersey. Okay, I knew we just played it. Um, uh, studio recordings survive. I like the studio recordings, but I'll say a lot. Okay, that's favorite that's dead album? Uh, studio album or live? Favorite dead album? Okay. <laughs> uh, I would say Europe 72 or, or Wake of Foot. Favorite non-Grateful Dead album? Oh. It's hard for a guy whose apartment is filled with albums and CDs yeah. and cassettes, I know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know. I can't answer that. It's it's different. First yeah. job. Um, first real job would be playing guitar in bars. Favorite color. Blue. I don't... You don't have a favorite color? You had to think black, about that that hard? Black. <laughs> <laughs> favorite venue to play. I have to say Red Rocks. Which we will be at on July 5th, coming up. Just got yeah. that gig. So excited, man. I'm glad we're going back. Yeah. Um, best city for a day off? Well, I'd say New York because I get to go. <laughs> I knew that's what you were going to say. I was thinking it as you said it. I totally knew that's what you were going to say. First car. Well, I like San Francisco, too. Okay. That's a great city. I'm sorry. <laughs> First car. Uh, 68 Nova Wagon. The Nova wagon, no less. Yeah, the big one. <laughs> no, no, no. Sorry, it wasn't a wagon. It was a. I mean, it was a wagon, but it wasn't the Nova. Uh, nomad, a Nomad wagon. That's. I've never heard Chevy, of that one. Chevy Nomad. It was yeah. like a kind of like a Chevelle. Just... The wagon. Current car. I had a twenty twenty Ford Fusion. Book you are reading. I'm reading Ant Kind by Charlie Kaufman. And it's pretty freaking weird. <laughs> um, magazine subscriptions. Yes. I know one of them that you have. I know one I, for sure. I have Relics, R Rolling Stone, uh, Acoustic Guitar, Guitar Player, Smithsonian, uh, Wire. It's an English uh, avant-garde magazine. That's probably it. The reason I know, I like one of the things I like, Jeff and I are the only two guys in the band who get Rolling Stones. So whenever we get back on tour, hey, man, did you see that article about so-and-so? Or, hey, did you see that issue? And we get to talk about that. We're also big, both both big Saturday Night Live fans, so we talk <laughs> about that. And and I knew about the Relic subscription, folks, because whenever he's done with it, I don't have a Relic I subscription. The, I got the new one in there for you. I have been right, sitting by my stuff to bring it to you. <laughs> whenever he gets done with them, I'll go on the bus and there'll be a rep the latest issue of relics laying on my bunk. <laughs> like, Thank you, Jeff. <laughs> um, with tomato and, sauce on it and stuff like that. <laughs> right. right. Well, and, and, and the last one I've changed now because it, it was always the first trip you will take when this madness is over, but now oh, this yeah. madness is kind of sort of over and we're traveling. So the last one is besides playing, what are you most excited to have back in your life as we come out of the pandemic? 
what am I both most excited about having back in my life? Just being able to go outside without fear. For sure, man. For sure. <laughs> I, I think I think we did it. I'm going to have to put it up against other episodes, but I think that might be the fastest lightning round we've had, which is good Good on us, man. Congratulations. Yeah, yeah man. I'll bring you. I'll bring you a prize when I see you tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff's in New York and I'm at home, but we're leaving tomorrow to go play our jubilation this weekend. So, uh, so hey, man, I, I can't wait to see you tomorrow and start playing again. But thanks yeah. for taking thanks for taking the time today, and it's my it, it was pleasure, awesome. Man. It was fun. Great. That is my bandmate and guitar player, Jeff Madsen. Thank you again, pal. All right, my pleasure. Well, that brings us to the end of yet another episode, and I would like to thank Jeff Madsen, Billy Melv, and Rick Turner for being here. I'm really looking forward to bringing you some more with Rick. I'd also like to thank my sponsors, Sarno Music Solutions and Blue Jade Audio, The Clean Store, The Authenticity Academy, and Grateful Sweats. If you enjoyed the show and would like to support the cause, please consider a monthly Patreon subscription that offers some great bonus content every week. Or you can show your love with a one-time contribution, and please remember that a portion of your contribution will go to the Rex Foundation. Get info about this and everything else related to the podcast at our website, www.themusicplaystheband.net. Any love is much appreciated as we try and keep the show rolling along. The Music Plays the Band is produced by myself and the production and songwriting team Brothers Lazaroff here in St. Louis, Missouri. You can find out more about them at www.brotherslazaroff.com. The opening and segue music you are hearing are remixes of portions of DSO drum segments that are produced by my drumming partner, Dino English. We're going to take a little break from when the next episode was originally scheduled for. It's coming up over the holiday weekend, and uh, it's a big weekend with shows uh, planned at the Peach Festival and a wonderful night scheduled for Red Rocks on July 5th. But I will be back on July 15th with episode 16 and some more great guests for you. Until then, stay safe, stay healthy, and please stay vigilant. Things are headed back in the right direction, but it's going to take everyone's efforts to truly get us back to normal. Thanks for being here. We'll see you soon. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.